You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Seth and Molly, here to remind listeners that our show relies heavily on your support. In the way that trees do on fungi, you are our mycelian network. And you help keep things knit together by joining us on Patreon at patreon.com slash bigpicturescience. Your support lets us keep our focus on producing this show, and it seems to pay off. We were happy to hear that our episode about vaccines last fall has been nominated for a Peabody Award. But we couldn't have produced the episode or any of our episodes without your support. When you subscribe to Big Picture Science on Patreon, you get early access to ad-free versions of the show each week. For only $5 a month, you gain access to exclusive bonus material, including the Sci Book Club, where we discuss books we've recently read, and where we have what we call a get in the interview biz. We snagged an interview with the author of Confessions of an Alien Hunter. Well, I I had an opening in my calendar that week. Listen to assistant producer Brian Edwards' discussion with Seth about adventures in listening for E.T. when you join Patreon, as well as having access to other exclusive bonus content. It's easy to join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash bigpicturescience. Thanks for your support. Thank you. You know, when I was a kid, we lived uh, essentially uh, two blocks away from a big forest, which had a lot of mushrooms in it. Now, I kind of walked around those mushrooms in fear because I'd heard that some mushrooms were poisonous. But obviously it wasn't all mushrooms because sometimes I would eat pizza with mushrooms on it. Some were obviously tasty and safe and others could kill you. The point is I had experienced mycophobia. I had a fear of mushrooms and I'm not the only one. But that fear may be keeping us from an enlightened perspective about fungi and the crucial roles they play in a changing climate. This is Big Picture Science from the SETI Institute, and I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. In this episode, why fictional fungi fear is not a full fabrication, why fungi are fantastic, and how to reconcile those facts going forward. This episode is Fungi Fear. What if the next pandemic comes not from a flu-like virus, but from a parasitic fungus that evolves in response to the rising temperatures of climate change? 
a fungus that's able to infect humans. Well, that is the premise of the television series, The Last of Us. In the show, two scientists debate the threat decades before the events unfold. Viruses can make us ill, but fungi can alter our very minds. There's a fungus that infects insects, gets inside an ant, for example, travels through its circulatory system to the ant's brain and then floods it with hallucinogens, thus bending the ant's mind to its will. Fungal infection of this kind is real, but not in humans. But what if that were to change? What if, for instance, the world were to get slightly warmer? The Last of Us focuses on the aftermath of a devastating global event triggered by mutated fungi. This dystopian drama draws on the classic zombie theme, but instead of reanimated corpses, the infected living become aggressive and cannibalistic, spreading infection as they feed. The fungi in this show, and this is not a spoiler, have jumped hosts from ants to humans. The warmer temperatures due to climate change allows them to survive at human body temperature. Well, fungi-infected brains turn humans into fungi-controlled puppets, no longer rational or able to control their instincts. What a horrible, terrifying premise. And like the most thrilling of science fiction, it's drawn from fact. The mind-control fungus in the television show The Last of Us exists. It's called Ophiocordyceps unilateralis, or cordyceps, also known as the zombie ant fungus. Entomologist David Hughes described it in an episode we did about mind control. So this is a really interesting uh, evolutionary dance between the fungus and the ant. So when ants are foraging, they walk on the forest floor, typically in rainforests where we study this, and they walk over a patch of fungal spores. The spores adhere to the ant's cuticle or skin, and then over a period of maybe 12 to 18 hours, burrow their way through the cuticle and into the body, by which time the ant is back inside its nest. And the fungus grows inside the ant's body while the ant is in the nest, and that happens for about two or three weeks. But the fungus must then transmit, and it cannot transmit inside the nest. So this is where the mind control comes in. The ant is instructed to leave the colony and to go and die outside the colony. Okay, it's instructed. I mean, this fungus isn't talking to these ants in any way that we would regard as talking. How is it doing that? How does it instruct the ant to leave the colony? In nature, much of the communication is chemical. So these fungi produce chemical uh, messengers which interact with the nervous system of the ant. These fungi are the same group of fungi from which we originally derived LSD and tranquilizer ketamine. So fungi are well known for their ability to affect behavior. So this ant, this infected ant, he's gone back to the hive to join his fellow hive ants, and suddenly bad chemicals in its body causes it to to walk outside and, and, and then do what? They go outside and then, then they die because the fungus must grow from the body of the dead ant. And it doesn't die in any old location. It dies firmly attached to the underside of a leaf or twig, biting deep into the leaf or twig tissue. And these leaves and twigs are close to where the fungus will eventually be able to target new ants by producing spore from its dead host. So once the ant bites into the leaf, the fungus grows a large stalk from the back of the head this stalk shoots spores which land on foraging ants. So this ant leaves the nest. It climbs up to some leaf that isn't too far above the, the forest floor there. It mm. bites into the leaf, what, with a death bite? 
Yeah, it's a, it's called a death grip. Okay, so we got this dead ant with this death grip of its jaw onto the leaf, and then the spore kills the ant, presumably by essentially just eating it up from the inside? Yes, at that stage, it's not just a spore anymore, but the ant is filled with many, many thousands of little, what are called blastospores, small parts of the fungus. You can think of it like a yeast growing inside the ant's body, producing the chemicals which have controlled its behavior. All right, and then it exits the ant somehow. It uh, produces something that's going to produce more seeds that can drop back down. Yeah, and this is a really beautiful part. Uh, there we see the fungi switching to having a coordinated growth. They grow this long stalk from the back of the ant's head, and the end of this stalk produces a body which produces spores, and these are shot down onto the forest floor each evening, and the cycle continues anew. It infects new ants. Yeah. All right, well, now uh, the evolutionary motivation for all this is simply reproduction, right? I mean, that, that's what's going on here. This is just the way the fungus makes more fungus. Exactly. By the way, Dr. Hughes was a consultant on the video game upon which the TV show The Last of Us is based. The popularity of the show has prompted mycologists, scientists who study fungi, to try and calm public panic about mutating mushrooms. If we were ants, I would say, yes, watch out, people. But because we are humans, we are mammals, you know, this has never happened in any mammals. This has been an insect thing. And it basically seemed like uh, something that was going to kind of restoke the older fear and hatred of, of mushrooms. And so I've seen some commentators uh, saying that they will never touch a single mushroom again after this, after this show. So cordyceps will probably not jump hosts and turn us into zombies, for one, because our body temperatures are too high, although more about that later in the show. But is the premise of The Last of Us misguided? Could climate change cause fungi to become a new infection threat? Unfortunately, that idea is not simply science fiction. Scientists say that the show points to a legitimate worry. We don't have a precedent with the fungi, but I can tell you that other species do. And to me, that is a warning sign that if it can happen to them, it can happen to us. It's understandable if you're now feeling uneasy about fungi, but before you seal your windows with duct tape to protect against spores, remember that fungi are also allies. Their underground mycelial networks are essential to all life forms, from trees to food to us. Fungi also store carbon, which means they are an important factor in mitigating climate change. So as temperatures rise, should we fear fungi, embrace them as allies, or respond in another way we haven't considered? Let's first look at how our relationship to fungi is changing. Humans are not the only species threatened by fungal pathogens. Those are imperiling all sorts of non-human species, and in some cases, driving them to extinction. If you're somebody who enjoys a morning cup of coffee or sliced banana on your cereal, well, your routine is in danger too. Before we consider climate change as a driver, we shouldn't overlook age-old mechanisms. Global trade and travel can transport spores far from their origin. Emily Monison is a toxicologist and professor at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. We may not be ready to hear the P word again, but she says it applies to the growing multi-species threat. Her book, 
is blight, fungi, and the coming pandemic. Just about any species is potentially vulnerable to a fungal pathogen. Some species are more vulnerable than others. Plants are probably most vulnerable. I think uh, fungal pathogens are one of the most important pathogens in plants. And probably least vulnerable are mammals because we have warmer bodies and fungi do not like our warm bodies. And so that leaves everything in between is susceptible to a fungal pathogen. And in your book, Blight, you talk about the coming fungal pandemics. And what do you mean by that? I focused on most of the fungal pathogens and the species that were impacted over the last, about the last century. They're emergent, they're relatively new, and they are something that humans probably aided in some way or another. They're fungi that found new hosts, basically. And so when they found a new host that they liked, that had no resistance to them and hadn't seen them before, they had the potential to take off and go epidemic or pandemic. And what species were affected in the the relatively new fungal pandemics? The relatively new ones are the pandemics that it, that's happening in frogs. There's a fungus called a chytrid fungus called BD fungus, which is aquatic. Uh, it's believed to have impacted populations of something like 500 different frog species and possibly driven dozens, if not more, into extinction. That's one. There's a fungus that's impacting bats right now. There's a fungus that's infecting snakes that I didn't write about. Actually, one of the newer emerging ones is in um, salamanders. So there's a fungus that has been infecting salamanders. It's related to the fungus that infects frogs. It has um, impacted fire salamanders in Europe, and we don't have it here yet. And so scientists are trying hard to understand and to prevent that fungus from coming here and impacting our salamanders. So it's a cross-species, as you write. And is it going to come as a surprise to you to hear that some people are absolutely unaware of this coming threat, of the threat? Like, we worry about viruses, of course. Uh, Maybe we worry about antibiotic resistance. But the threat from fungi is not on the top of most lists of things to be worried about. I think that's true. But I do think that when I speak to people about it, they've heard of one thing or another. They've heard maybe about the bat disease or the frog disease, or maybe even they know that American chestnut is functionally extinct because of a fungus, but they don't think about it as anything more than that. And so they seem to know about it, but maybe that was a fluke, a weird thing that happened. That was one of the reasons to sort of highlight that this can happen across species. It's happening now. It's not historical. And what is it that makes fungi especially, uh, I don't know, aggressive or hardy as pathogens? I think one big difference between fungi and say bacteria, almost all bacteria, and viruses is spores. So those fungi that produce spores, they produce millions of spores. Spores can be very resilient. Uh, Some can last days or weeks, decades. So I think that that is one thing that makes fungi really important potential pathogen. Now, you said that human activity is playing a role in the spread of these fungal diseases. What are the factors that are encouraging, if you will, the spread of these fungi? Trade is a big one. So when we take a plant, say, that might have some you know, fungus on it, bring that plant with that fungus over here, and then it might find another species that it can infect. 
Same with the animals. Um, frogs, one of the reasons they think that this BD fungus has spread around the world and infected frogs is through the animal trade. What are some of the other things that are happening? Well, there's travel. So, you know, if you put us back 100 or 200 years and think about how much travel there was, it's nothing compared to what we do now. And that is one of the, with that bat disease that I talked about, that's one of the ways that spores may have traveled is with somebody who visited a cave in one country and then came to another country. And you wouldn't know it that you're bringing them into a country. You might know, of course, you know if you're bringing some fruit or some plants. They ask yeah. you about that at the border, but they don't ask to check your, your clothes and your shoes for spores. It's very easy to bring them in. Oh, yeah. And I think about this. I hike a lot. And now that I, after I wrote this, I think about hiking. If I hike up sort of along the Appalachian Trail, say, I think about, you know, what am I taking from here to there in the mud of my boots across different states? You write that fungi are major plant pathogens as well, of course. And if we talk about staples, <laughs> coffee is vulnerable. <laughs> At least it's a staple for me. Something called coffee rust. Is that what the fungus is called? It's another one that's out there. Coffee rust is another fungus that's out there. So you could you could eat a breakfast of, say, coffee, a piece of toast, and some banana, and all three of those breakfast favorites are potentially in trouble because of fungus. And fungus does infect major crops, wheat and rice and bananas. So I wrote about fungus that infects bananas. And there's two important fungal diseases now. One of them um, is kind of manageable, that's called black cigatoka. But another one called fusarium wilt is very important and has banana growers very afraid. Our crops are very susceptible because we grow huge monocrops. So there's not a lot of genetic diversity in those plants. If you get a fungus that can infect and kill those plants, it's gonna have a feast. So there are a lot of different kinds of bananas. We eat one. We eat a banana called the Cavendish banana. It's grown as a huge monocrop. It's basically a clone. And so this fungus has just devastated banana plantations in countries that don't yet have it, like Costa Rica, are terrified um, and incursion by this fungus. Emily, when we talk about how we want to fight fungi, we have to be reminded that fungi also have an important role for example, with crops, fungi in the soil are important to the richness and the nutrients in the soil. Yes, that is true. So they're helpful fungi that are actually used in agriculture to fend off insect pests and other fungal pests and bacteria. You know, Emily, I would imagine that a lot of questions right now, including ours, are being asked you couched in the drama the Last of Us. And I'm wondering if you find that a relief because, oh, now we're talking about fungal pathogens or sort of frustrating <laughs> that there are so many references to it. I think that that show has done something great for raising awareness about fungal pathogens. You know, a month or two ago, the World Health Organization put out a list of priority fungal pathogens. It was in the news for maybe a week or two. Um, but this show is just sticking around, and it has just made a lot of people ask about fungal pathogens. And so I think that's a good thing, because we need to be aware of them. You have written extensively about the human relationship with the natural world. Emily, what are we doing? How did we get ourselves into this predicament? Humans have really created a mess for themselves on this planet. We have. That's true. And that's a really good uh, comment and question. I think that we've looked out for ourselves <laughs> for a long time. So we've 
taken the trees that we wanted and we've grown the crops that we think are bigger, faster growing, and we've reduced diversity for making things faster, better, cheaper. I mean, that's sort of what it had been in the past. And in doing that, we've made a lot of changes to the environment. Finally, what do the solutions look like, Emily? And I know that this is a broad topic, but if you can point us in the right direction, uh, what are some of the best practices you're seeing or reporting on? So I think if people are talking about crops, when you have a huge monoculture, the one solution is to not have a huge monoculture. So to grow different varieties, some will be susceptible, some will not. We also, on the same vein, we need to also conserve genetic diversity in plants um, and in animals. But you know, that's if a plant is going to survive or an animal is going to survive a fungus out in the wild, it's because some animal had the genetic diversity and the potential to resist the fungus. And with the trade, that is something that we can do better with. We can be more careful when we're thinking about plant trade or animal trade. You know, it might be early, but I think after COVID, um, diagnostics, if disease diagnostics are improved and you can quickly have something like the Star Trek tricorder, which, you know, might not be that far off. If you can quickly detect a disease by swabbing a, a plant or an animal and see if there are any spores there, which are not visible, rather than having humans have to inspect them, that would go a long way. Emily Monison, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Molly. Emily Monison is a toxicologist, a member of the Ronan Institute, and a professor at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. She's the author of Blight, Fungi, and the Coming Pandemic. I found it interesting that some of the particular threats that she mentions in terms of fungal infections are things we've heard before. The fact that people today do a lot more travel than they used to, and they go, you know, all around the world. Within 24 or 48 hours, a a fungal spore that's here can also be there. Uh, Also, monoculture, agriculture. That's something that also causes problems because you don't have the diversity which can protect you against some of these uh, pathogenic mechanisms. Dr. Monison described how global travel has changed our relationship with fungi. Another factor, of course, is climate change. Earlier, we were reassured that the fungus cordyceps can't infect humans because our body temperatures are too high. But what if that protection goes away? Next, the implications for human health as fungi adapt to a warmer world. This episode of Big Picture Science is Fungi Fear. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart 
and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Hi, Molly and Seth here again with a quick reminder that we do count on your support, and here's an incentive to provide it. An interview with Seth about his book, Confessions of an Alien Hunter. That's right. Our assistant producer, Brian Edwards, chatted with me about the book. His snores are barely audible in the recording. Which is available as exclusive bonus content for our Patreon subscribers. For only a couple of bucks a month, you can become a subscriber at patreon.com slash bigpicturescience. We rely on support from listeners just like you to keep the show in production. When you join us on Patreon, you get early access to ad-free versions of each episode. At the $5 a month level or above, you also get access to exclusive bonus material, which includes extended interviews, movie reviews, and, for example, the discussion I had with Brian. Do you and Brian talk about radio astronomy and and about aliens? Well, you'll have to subscribe to find out. Ah, the exclusivity of it all. So come to Patreon to support Science Radio, to hear about radio telescopes, and treat yourself to bonus content unavailable anywhere else. Join us today at patreon.com slash bigpicturescience. We appreciate your support. Thanks. There are millions of species of fungi. They're some of the strangest and most influential organisms on the planet. Evidence suggests fungi appeared on Earth a billion years ago, and they soon got busy. They contributed to the rise of plants and the decline of reptiles. When our human ancestors appeared, our fate with fungi became forever intertwined. Our saving grace is a number, 98.6 degrees or thereabouts. The body temperature of mammals, which ranges from 97 to 104 degrees Fahrenheit, lets them fight off many of the dangerous fungi invaders. But as global temperatures rise, that defense is under threat. In the show The Last of Us, the insect fungal pathogen cordyceps adapts to rising temperatures and jumps to humans. Cordyceps mutated. Some of it got into the food supply, probably a basic ingredient like flour or sugar. So the tainted food all hits the store shelves around the same time Thursday. People bought it, ate some Thursday night or Friday morning. They started to get sick. Afternoon, evening, they got worse. Then they started biting. The show's premise is science fiction, but fungal diseases are a global health concern. Some scientists call fungi the coming superbugs. Consider the rise in cases of valley fever in the American Southwest. It's caused by inhaling a common fungus that thrives in hot, dry soil and is spreading as climate change drives out the western United States. It may be a harbinger of sorts. Recently, the WHO released a list of priority fungal pathogens that need more surveillance and for which we need to develop effective treatments. One of the scientists who has been ringing the alarm about the fungal threats to humans is microbiologist and immunologist Arturo Casadevall. He specializes in fungal disease at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, and he gives us an overview. Arturo, in the television show The Last of Us, the fungus cordyceps evolves from infecting ants to infecting humans. What's the likelihood that that could actually happen? Improbable, but not impossible. Well, I mean, we have natural immunity to most fungal infections, do we not? We have two major defense mechanisms. One of them is we are hot, and I mean hot by temperature. 
we can exclude most fungal species by our temperature. And second, we have adaptive immunity, which ants don't have. How would you describe adaptive immunity? It sounds like, did we all get infected by fungi when we were younger? Well, adaptive immunity means that we can respond to, and we have memory, immunological memory. Like, for example, antibodies are part of adaptive immunity. Ants don't have antibodies. I see. All right. All right. So we're, we're better equipped. But one of the key components of our defense is the fact that we have that 98.6 or whatever it is, body temperature that uh, is, I presume, lethal to fungi. That's right. We showed about maybe 10 years ago that most fungal species that live in the environment, and that's the overwhelming majority of them, simply cannot replicate at our temperatures. So maintaining that temperature is giving you a lot of protection against an entire kingdom. But there seems to be, you know, an increasing global threat from fungi. I mean, you know, not just this television show. A television show presumably has some basis in a, a real possibility. And what what's the problem? So, Seth, about also about 10 years ago, we wrote an article in which we warned that global uh, warming could bring new fungal diseases. Imagine the following. Those organisms in the environment are either going to adapt or they may die. So really hot days provide selection events. So as they adapt, they may be able to grow above our temperature. And when that happens, we lose our thermal defenses. So, yeah, the fact that we're not hot enough, I guess, is the problem. Uh, while the climate is changing to you know favor fungi that can withstand higher temperatures, and uh, as it were, storm the walls of our, our castle. Is this really, though, a serious threat? I mean, even aside from its suitability as something uh, fodder for television, you know, is this something I should lie awake at night and worry about? Well, I don't think this is something to lie awake at night and worry about, but I do think that there is some evidence that is already happening. And there is one fungus that appeared about 10 years ago to Candida auris, which we have proposed may be the first example of a fungus adapting to higher temperatures and defeating or temperature defenses. Is this a, you know, a microscopic kind of fungus? I mean, all fungi that kill people are microscopic. People, we don't, mushrooms don't grow on us. <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> okay, so they're microscopic fungi that, uh, you know, they're built to withstand higher temperatures because they've evolved. They've evolved while the temperature of the planet is is rising. How would you characterize the potential for fungus to be to be a threat that we really have to combat in the same way we combated COVID by a worldwide effort and, uh, you know, involving billions and billions of dollars of research and manufacturing capability? I mean, is this something that's really important or is this just sort of an incidental threat that we're confronting? Seth, if you look at history, we have never had to confront a fungal pandemic. But I will also say to you that when I went to medical school, I was taught that coronavirus didn't kill anybody. <laughs> so what I would say to you is that if you look at the environment, there are fungi that are killing the bats in North America. They're killing the frogs throughout the world. And I think that it will be hubris to think that something like that couldn't happen to us. I think, Seth, the difference is that for viruses, they need or the host to replicate on. But these organisms that live in the environment fundamentally don't need us. So the World Health Organization recently came out a, with a list of, of the most worrisome fungal infections. 
How do you get on the World Health Organization's list of, uh, you know, most dangerous fungal infections? You got to be a bad fungus. Uh, <laughs> a, a truffle doesn't get on the list. Uh, you know, baker's yeast doesn't get on the list. After all, we need baker's yeast to make us beer and wine. To get in that list, you got to be a bad fungus. And what is a bad fungus? A bad fungus is one that kills people and that is difficult to treat. Just from a sort of a phenomenological point of view, if I get a, you know, a lethal fungal infection, what does it do to me? I mean, okay, there are these little microscopic fungi in my bloodstream, but so what? What do they do? Eat things? Well, what they do is they often colonize organs, and then they grow in an organ. Like, for example, cryptococcus grows on the brain, and it grows to such thing that it squeezes the brain and kills people through pressure. It's a horrible disease. Candida can grow in the liver, damage the liver. So these things kill you by going to organs. They damage the organs to the point that life is no longer possible. What are the fungi that most worry you? I mean, what's your top list, the you know, most wanted list when it comes to fungi and their interaction or their threat to humans? So, Seth, right now, the fungi are threats to people who generally have weakened immunity. Most humans don't worry about fungal diseases. You ever wonder yeah, yeah. about that? If we were trees, we'd be terrified of the fungi. If we were insects, we'd be terrified of the fungi. But today, when people think about fungal diseases, they worry about athlete's foot. They worry about getting a nail infection. Why is that? Why are we so resistant to that? That's a different way to ask the question. And we can go there, but I have argued in print that part of the reason that we are so resistant to this is because we are the survivors of a fungal bloom that happened 65 million years ago when the dinosaurs died. It's selected for organisms that were warmer, the mammals. And today, the mammals are resistant to fungal diseases because they're hot, because they were selected by fungi. So the fact that I've got this 98.6 degree body temperature is thanks to fungi? I argue that that is that's a certainly a hypothesis that I... Look, when that rock hit the Earth 65 million years ago, it devastated the world. But there were survivors. There were little survive. There were little mammals that survive, and there were reptiles that survive because we have iguanas today. So, <laughs> Seth, if the yeah. reptiles were so fit, how come we didn't get a second reptilian age? Yeah, I, th I think it's because they sleep all day. That's their problem. I, don't know. <laughs> I would I would argue that the 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 problem was that something kept them down, and something gave the mammals a leg up. And in that devastated world where the sun went out for years, where all the forests came down, one can document a massive fungal bloom. So anybody, yeah. anything that lived through those days would have had to live through massive numbers of spores. So yeah. I would say to you that this is all connected. But, you know, I don't know if you know, but there is evidence that we're getting colder. Body temperature. Body temperature. There was a paper published a couple of years ago in which they looked at the temperatures through the century. You say there's evidence that uh, human body temperatures are coming down. Why would that be? If you lived around 1900, a lot of people had parasitic diseases. A lot of people had been infected with tuberculosis. It was a more inflammatory world. It was a dirtier world in many ways. And what is happening is that so we live now in a cleaner world. There is less inflammation, and inflammation is a major driver of temperature. So as we cleaned up our world and we become healthier, 
the temperatures go down. So here you have the situation. So we're getting cooler and the fungi are getting warmer. And I think that's trouble ahead. You know, this may just be my perception, but when I walk down the pharmaceutical aisles at the local drugstore, you know, there are a lot of things for treating what I believe are bacterial infections. I don't see too much against fungi. Is that because they're non-lethal or is there's the economics don't work? What is it? That is a fascinating question. And it goes, it goes to this. Fungi are our closest relatives. The fungi are very related to animals. That means that our physiology is very similar. The way that you develop an antimicrobial drug is you try to find a difference. You want to kill the fungus. You don't want to kill the person. So it's just harder. It's harder to find antifungal drugs than it is to find antibacterial drugs. And that is why we have so few of them. What what about this fungal disease valley fever in the American Southwest? Is that uh, sort of an early warning sign of what could happen? Well, that's true. So valley fever is, is caused by coccidiomycosis, hard to pronounce word. All these words are hard to pronounce. And, <laughs> uh, and it's been localized to California and to the Southwest. But there is now evidence that people are getting infected in other parts of the country. And the, we have to rethink you know, what are the natural places this stuff is found? And with global warming and, and more deserts, I think that you're going to see the movement of this, this fungus. Wow. Well, <laughs> it's kind of a depressing subject, uh, Arturo. Finally, what about the usual approach to getting rid of uh, widespread diseases, which is to develop a vaccine that kind of, you know, educates our immune systems to... Uh, take on the pathogen? That's a great question. So it turns out that in the laboratory, they're relatively easy to make. You can make vaccines against the fungi pretty easily. The problem is development. Vaccines are developed by the pharmaceutical industry. And it is just very hard to develop a vaccine for a small group of people. And there was also the concern, and here you get into a catch-22, that the people who really need these vaccines often have weakened immunity. So you may be giving them a vaccine that it's not going to take because their immune system is weak. But again, the problem is development. It's the economics of developing a vaccine for relatively few people. Well, I'm going to I'm going to work on raising my body temperature. Not sure how I'm going to do that, but <laughs> Arturo Casadevall, thank you so very much for speaking to us. Thank you so much for having me, Seth. Arturo Casadevall is a microbiologist and immunologist and professor of medicine at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Well, I have to say, Seth, some of the threats that he outlines there are pretty chilling. One thing that struck me is the fact that we have this higher body temperature, something I always wondered about because, you know, higher body temperature requires you to eat more. Why do we have that? Well, here's one reason, the fact that it's a defense against pathogens like fungi. So we kind of outlined the threat that fungi pose as the world gets warmer, but let's turn the dystopian discussion on its head. What if instead mushrooms could save the world? And they are master alchemists, so fungi will consume our plastic, although as I talked to a friend, he said, yeah, it might take him a few million years to really nail it. Next, how to approach fungi in a radical new way. This episode of Big Picture Science is Fungi Fear, 
From the latest in artificial intelligence to new apps and business upgrades, the tech industry is always changing and growing. So keep up with a Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes released nearly every day, the Daily Crunch gives you a brief overview of the biggest tech headlines, and it's all delivered in around five minutes or less. So you can easily hear about the latest updates while trying some of those updates for yourself. Listen to The Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. As we heard, fungi have helpfully shaped our planet for millions of years. But how do we weigh that against the threats that fungi pose to our health and that of other species? Why not get rid of all these sporing organisms? Well, we asked one fungi expert, what would the world look like if all fungi disappeared? (laughs) That would be an utter catastrophe. So the two big things in terms of plants is that so many forms of decomposition would stop so that leaves would fall and not rot. Wood would not decay. So you'd have trees that would fall over and they would just build up and up and up. And what's really interesting, right, is that it's not just, oh, it would create a a traffic jam as the the trees are there or they'd be thick in the forest, but it's literally part of the cycles of life of how the carbon and nitrogen and phosphorus flow. And then on the other hand, about 90% of all plants, they really rely on having this underground network that, that does this exchange of nutrients. So you would overnight start to see plants withering they wouldn't be able to get nearly the amount of water that they get right now, and they would start to be stressed. So you'd see huge plant death over the entire world. That underground network he refers to is the fungi's complex and far-ranging mycelium. Its branching structure has been likened to a neuronal network. And it's a fitting comparison for one scientist who proposes a radical new way to think about fungi, one that he hopes will transcend the fungi are either good or bad way of thinking. Hi, my name is Michael Hathaway. I'm a professor of anthropology and the director of the Asian Studies Center at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver, Canada. He says that addressing our climate and environmental crises means adopting a broader perspective about the capabilities of other organisms, one that's not centered around humans. To that end, his book has an intriguing title, What a Mushroom Lives For. He gave us an overview. It's a book in two parts, and so the first part is an exploration into rethinking the role of fungi in the history of the planet and to get away from this idea that they're relatively insignificant and to show that they were utterly vital into how plants emerged onto land, how they transformed probably mammalian evolution, how they've made our rich green planet possible. And then the second part of the book is kind of a little bit more of my typical anthropological hat where I went to southwest China's Himalayan uh, region and worked with Tibetan pastoralists. And I tried to understand how their engagement with this one very valuable mushroom called the Matsutake mushroom has utterly transformed their society. Dr. Hathaway asks us to consider that living beings other than humans and some animals like cats and dogs have agency. 
That's a challenging idea that a primitive and very old species, an organism that is neither an animal nor a plant, has agency. But he says, consider that fungi are actively shaping the world. And so I look at a whole range of fungi actions and our world is utterly shaped by them to the core. And you describe them as actually lively beings and they move, which isn't a surprise to anyone who's seen a mushroom pop up overnight after a rain. Uh, Describe how mushrooms and mycelia move. Yeah, so the mushroom, we usually think of that as um, the, the above ground visible part of the whole fungi. And so fungi are part of this huge kingdom with tens of thousands and maybe more of species. And it's a kingdom that was only acknowledged by the scientific community around 1968 for the first time. And so the mycelium are these these very fine threads that grow underground and they knit together very, very quickly and powerfully to form the above ground mushroom of the kinds of fungi that produce them. Yes, and so they have all of these forms of movement and action. But if we look inside the mushroom, for example, when they are ejecting their spores through these really intricate mechanisms that use uh, drops of water usually to like eject spores out at incredible speeds and with incredible force. So there's this form of very active movement. It's one of the fastest actions, really, like the speed of a cheetah that's happening within the mushroom every second that it's sporulating. Have you seen the spores shoot out? I've certainly seen the spores uh, shoot out after they come out of the gills. Uh, you can see it with some of the ones, like the ones that come out of the cow poop. They they really shoot like little catapults. You can visibly see them and you can watch that happen. So that's going on. And it also, as you say, they just pop up overnight. They grow at these tremendous speeds with amazing force and they can break pavement, as I'm sure you've seen. And then underground, they have millions and millions of the, the mycelia and they are actively exploring the ground. I think uh, historically, a lot of times scientists imagine that they just move randomly through the soil column, but now it seems that these uh, mycelium can detect things that they're looking for. So they're looking for water, they're actively looking for nutrients. We've just now been able to make cameras to show the exchange of nutrients within these mycelia. I mean, so they're much thinner than a, than a hair. And we were surprised to realize that the nutrients are going both ways through the tube. We imagined they would, before, would just go one way through. And of course, they're making relationships with plants. So they're often mining minerals and nutrients from the soil and bringing up water and sharing it with plants. And then plants are, in turn, giving their photosynthetic sugars back to the fungi. So those are the carbohydrates that they are uh, creating through photosynthesis. And, And in fact, you write that this network is what makes life possible on this planet. And if we were to go underground, you would see this dense network knitting together plants and trees and trees of different species. So they are maybe the original unifier. That's a good way to put it. I mean, and they were there right from the beginning, right from when plants were, you know, starting to move to to the rocky land that was not yet soil. It was it was fungi, especially their kind of uh, symbiotic relations that created lichen that were helping to actually create soil. And as you say, as that transformation slowly happened of taking this rocky planet that had no forms of plants, fungi were these 
really critical allies. We've just found a new fossilized fungi nearly a billion years old um, that shows the kind of long evolution of this process. And I, and I think in the last few decades, our understandings of the role of fungi to the livelihood of all land plant species has really uh, boomed. And in part because we haven't historically tried to look so much for fungi fossils or even thought about their roles evolutionarily. Well, swinging the needle to the other side from all the dangers posed by fungi, pathogens in a warmer world, we come upon those who say that mushrooms will save the world and protect us from climate change. And what do you think of this argument, that they will be our saviors? Mm. Well, yeah, no, that's a great question. And it's interesting, right, because it's part of kind of historical legacy that is very prevalent in Western culture of this kind of silver bullet idea of, of what will save us from X, Y, or, or Z. And so when it comes to climate change, I find it so fascinating that it was Jennifer Talbot, who's a mycologist and also a climate change expert, who I think it was her 2008 paper that said, hey, look people, almost all the models of climate change totally ignore the role of fungi that we've realized that of the sequestration of carbon into the soil, that fungi are absolutely critical. So on the idea of how they'll save us, you mentioned carbon sequestration. So that means that the, the fungi and their, and their networks are holding on to all of this carbon, which is a good thing in a warmer world. Um, but there are other reasons, Michael. People say that fungi will clean up our polluting activities right? Um, maybe they can be trained to eat plastic. Can you give us a list of the other ways in which they're going to help us clean up the environment? Sure. Yeah. You, you mentioned two of them. And the one with being able to eat oil was something I think first kind of noticed by Paul Stamets, who's often known as one of the big evangelists of fungi. And he's done a lot to increase this. And then there was a researcher uh, who's a, and based in China, who looked at a Pakistan uh, landfill and found fungi that can break down plastic and it actually uses some kind of interesting force. It's not just a, a chemical enzyme, which is what we first thought. And they are master alchemists. So fungi will consume our plastic. Although, as I talked to a friend, he said, yeah, it might take him a few million years to really nail it, but, but it will happen. But they'll get around to it. And wasn't there a guy who taught his mushroom to eat cigarette butts? Maybe not eats, right. not the right word. Digest? Yeah, digest. Yeah. So it's interesting. Like we think of domestication of plants as in a way training them for certain uh, traits that we wish to do. And so fungi can be trained to do so many things. So, I mean, we're very late to the game of recognizing the diverse possibilities of fungi. And yet I'm leery of trying to only see them as an ally to help humans because they're much more than that. And so I feel like that is one of the key problems that when we look quickly at other species rather than trying to understand their diverse ways of being and existing in the world and then we just quickly move to how can they be of use to us at this particular moment then we radically simplify them and kind of turn them into resources, which I think is, is at our peril. I think the dire environmental situation that we have today is built on this legacy of centuries of this kind of resourcist approach that has then not seen other organisms in their complexity, not appreciated their ways of being in the world and the rich relationships that they make with others. 
when we try to picture a world where as we solve the formidable problems in front of us, we have this more enlightened view of the non-human world. And I wonder if you could just give us some examples of how that would play out in practice. Yeah, no, that's a big question and a great, great one. Part of what I think it means is trying to understand both in popular culture or even in scientific practice, that if we recognize the capacities of other species, we treat them differently. One of the colleagues of my research group, uh, which is called the Matsutake Worlds Research Group, her name is Anna Singh, and she's she recently has been giving these wonderful talks around the incredibly widespread use of fungicide and how we're basically drenching the earth in this fungicide. And, and it's such a broad spectrum one, just like what we've done with antibiotics. And we've had a kind of a rethinking about what the widespread uh, role of antibiotics has done and how actually we are changing the ecology, not just our own bodies, but the larger ecology through the widespread use of antibiotics that um, basically bombing you know huge areas of the earth uh, with fungicides in order to make the world safe for the plants that we want to grow. But through doing so, we are also having huge consequences. Um, so it really makes me even think back that this is uh, another kind of parallel to the Rachel Carson's um, kind of silent spring warning about the use of DDT and other chemicals. Well, finally, then, Michael, perhaps for every episode we indulge in about fungi pathogens, we should spend the same amount of time in our garden or walking in the woods. Yeah, and it's just appreciating all of the forms. And it's even all around us. I write in my book that for years when I walked the sidewalks of, of Vancouver, I thought they were just stains on the ground. But I realized later it was these forms of lichen that were thriving on the concrete that I'd walked over, that they're all around us um, in every single breath. And so sometimes we think we have to get out to nature to kind of appreciate the fungi, but they're there whether we want them or not in, in all spaces. But overall, they've been of incredible, wonderful importance to the life of the entire planet. Well, Michael Hathaway, thank you so much for joining us. And it's a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so much, Molly. It was great. Really enjoyed it. Michael Hathaway is an anthropologist, director of the Asian Studies Center at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver, Canada, and author of What a Mushroom Lives For. So Seth, now we come to the big picture about how our relationship with fungi is changing. What are your thoughts? Well, the first thing is that it was a much bigger picture than I expected. I think it was mentioned by one of our guests that the fungi have been around for about a billion years. A billion years. Remember, it was only 65 million years ago that the dinosaurs were still here. This is, you know, a lot longer than that. And that means that they're very tightly integrated into life, right? And, and if they didn't do anything useful, I'm sure they wouldn't be around today. I mean, it's just amazing what a billion years of evolution can do. Well, my takeaway here is that we've learned that the daily actions of trillions of fungi have shaped our planet for millions of years, as, as you said. But now our daily actions are shaping the behavior of trillions of fungi. You know, one good example of how our behavior may cause a real problem is uh, with these fungal infections. But there's also silver lining here, which is we have been given advance notice of this emerging problem. 
of fungi pathogens. We do have an understanding of how our behaviors are prompting this situation, and we have the tools to prepare for coming pandemics and fungal infections. So what we do next, well, the choice is ours. Yeah, we have a leg up on the reptiles, right? They were being done in by the fungi, but they didn't have the wits to be able to combat them. This show would not be possible without the extraordinary adaptability of senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producers Shannon Rose Geary and Brian Edwards. I am the executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley. Thanks also to financial support from the Breakthrough Prize Foundation, Lauren Trottier, Rena Shulsky-David, and Sammy David. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization that investigates the possibilities for life beyond Earth. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak. Also, a big thanks to our listeners and our Patreon supporters. The original music in the show is by Dewey DeLay and June Miyaki. This episode of Big Picture Science that looks at our changing relationship with fungi is called Fungi Fear. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science, everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.